into the study of uh, some endocrine glands, okay, some diseases that have manifestations as a result of hormones, excess or deficiency. We are going to start with the thyroid. Of course, we are not going to cover all those slides today. There are this material for several days. And we are going to start with the thyroid. Okay, we have there a picture that shows the anatomy, okay, the location of the thyroid. There are some important vascular structures and nerves that are very close to the thyroid gland. So I'm sorry, we didn't finish the, the last slide. No. No, no. no you're at uh, 30. Yeah. Um, 30 Where are we stopped? At slide 30. Oh, that's it. That's right. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That's it. Okay, ADH and SIAD. Go back in time. So, SIADH, inappropriate antidiuretic hormone secretion. This is something that is very common, very, very, very common. Uh, sometimes may occur simply as a manifestation, of, as a, one of the manifestations of different conditions that patients may have. And you're going to see it very commonly, even though we are not going to tell that the patient has an SIADH. Maybe what the patient has is liver disease or heart failure or other conditions. And SIADH may be one of the manifestations. So we are going to focus today more on the endocrine problem, when there is excess of antidiuretic hormone secretion due to problems in the hypothalamus or any endocrine disorder. Okay, this is a hormone that is produced by the, the hypothalamus, okay, released from the posterior pituitary, and the action is to increase the free water reabsorption. Okay, there is no reabsorption of sodium by the action of ADH. It acts in the distal nephron. Okay, so anytime we have a an increase in osmolality in the plasma, ADH is going to be released. Any situation of stress for the body will lead to a release of ADH in different amounts. We produce a very little amount anytime we, for example, have more sodium than normal in the blood after eating something that contains salt. But when we are under stress, we may produce 10,000 10, more times the amount of ADH. And so it has different functions. So and that's the reason why it has different names, antidiuretic or vasopressin. Because when we produce this huge amount, 10,000 times the, the normal amount, okay, not only we are going to reabsorb water, we are going to also produce vasoconstriction in many different places. Okay, that's why when we are uh, dehydrated or we are bleeding, any type of shock, we produce lots of ADH. The main action of this hormone is to concentrate the urine and dilute the plasma. Okay, so when you have a person with a very high ADH, 
those are going to be the manifestations. The urine is going to have a very high osmolality, and the plasma is going to have low osmolality. Remember, this is going to be the contrary to diabetes insipidus, in which we have a very diluted urine, and we may develop hypernatremia if we don't drink water. Because in that case, ADH is not produced or is not acting on the kidney. So it does it by inserting aquaporins in the distal nephron, okay, translocation from the cytoplasm. And there are different stimuli, okay, increase osmolality, decrease blood volume or pressure, stress, and some medications may increase ADH, either release or action. Okay? When we release ADH under these conditions here, very high sodium or sugar, low, low blood pressure, stress, or medications, that is appropriate. That is the normal response of the body. Now, if we have a low plasma osmolality or a normal plasma osmolality, the blood pressure is normal or high, we are not under stress, we are not taking those medications, and ADH is elevated, then we say this is inappropriate. And that's the origin of the name of this syndrome. Okay, we produce ADH when it is not appropriate to do. So we have some medications, okay, that uh, are linked with hyponatremia. Okay, some of them stimulate the release of ADH, some of them potentiate the ADH effects. You have some in bold letters, those are the most important. Opioids, opiates stimulate ADH release. Then we have the carbamazepine, the NSAIDs, okay, and some others there that potentiate the effect of ADH. There you have oxytocin. Oxytocin has a direct vasopressin-like effect on the kidneys. Oxytocin, and some illegal drugs, for example, ecstasy, okay, they work on producing hyponatremia okay, by two different mechanisms. Okay, it stimulates ADH release and also induces thirst. Okay, so people who take ecstasy, they usually drink a lot of water. Okay, and that's the reason, at least in Spain, if you go to a nightclub, to any disco, a bottle of water may cost you 20 euros. Because people who take ecstasy to party, they don't consume alcohol. But they drink a lot of water. And they make a lot of money as a result of this. So SIADH, okay, excessive antidiuretic or vasopressin, okay, uh, relative to what is appropriate. Okay, given the osmolality, given the blood volume, given the blood pressure. Okay, this produces something called hypotonic hyponatremia. Okay, we are not studying today uh, the electrolyte imbalances. Okay, when we study, the, when we go to nephrology, we are going to study hyponatremia. Okay, there are different types of hyponatremia. Okay, but in this case, uh, we have a true hyponatremia. Hypotonic refers to the osmolality of the plasma, while hyponatremia to the sodium levels. Okay, someone may have hyponatremia, but ha may have a high osmolality in the plasma. 
for example, people with diabetes. Okay, the highest molality is due to the glucose, but the sodium is going to be low. Okay, when we say hypotonic hyponatremia, we are saying plasma osmolality is low and sodium levels are low. And what is euvolemic? They are not. Uh, they have a normal blood volume. They are not. They don't have a volume overload, or they are not dehydrated. Okay, when you analyze the jugular vein pressure, etc., the patient is euvolemic. Now, there is the pathogenesis, it's simple, excess ADA leads to retention of water, free water, so it's in excess to sodium, leading to a dilution in the plasma, that is what we call hypotonic hyponatremia. Okay, but the blood pressure is going to be normal, there, there, is no, there are no signs of excess or defect in the blood, in the body fluids. Now, what is the differential for this? Well, we have to think in neoplasia, for example, Small cell carcinoma in the lung may produce antidiuretic hormone. Okay, we have some central nervous system disorders, trauma, tumors, infections in the brain, some degenerative diseases, psychosis, okay, people with different brain disorders or trauma. Notice infections and pneumonia, for example, may lead to this, acute respiratory failure, then positive pressure ventilation may stimulate the release of antidiuretic and notice medications, okay, vasopressin, okay, easy to understand, giving exogenous ADH, chemotherapies and antidepressants, uh, typically NSA, uh, uh, and forgot the, the letters, serotonin reuptake inhibitors, uh, nicotine and high dose oxytocin. Now, notice what is the origin of the findings that we may have. Okay, there is a dilution of the plasma. Okay, notice that the total body water will increase, but the blood volume is going to be normal. That's why we say euvolemic. Okay, this excess water, when we say total body water increases, that excess volume is not in the blood vessels. Okay, it may be in the extracellular compartment but in the interstitial space, but it's not in the plasma. The serum, uh, urine and osmolality electrolytes, okay, will show inappropriate high urine osmolality compared to the serum osmolality. The urine is concentrated, but the serum is diluted. We have to rule out other problems like adrenal, thyroid, renal, cardiac, hepatic function, okay, to say that this is an SIADH. Okay, when you have a patient that is hyponatremic, euvolemic in the physical exam, and you rule out other uh, disorders like heart failure, hepatic failure, renal failure, thyroid, adrenal problems, after you rule out all the things that should be ruled out, you say this is an SIADH, and then you consider if this is as a result of brain trauma, infection, cancer, or any of the other causes that we mentioned in the etiology. Okay, so the symptoms are going to be due to hyponatremia, mainly uh, problems in the level of consciousness, will depend on the sodium levels, will depend on the osmolality of the plasma. Okay, for example, when the plasma is around 240, typically the plasma osmolality should be around 
295-300. There are going to be mental status, personality changes, lethargy, confusion. Sometimes it's uh, very subtle, depends on other uh, manifestations or other conditions that the patient has. Okay, it's very difficult to recognize, for example, in patients who are in coma or in patients who have any dementia okay, or other type of disorders. Now, when the sodium goes below 115, the problem starts being really bad. Support neuromuscular hyperexcitability, hyperreflexia, seizures, coma, death. Of course, it has to be cor uh, corrected slowly. Okay, we don't want to produce any a real problem, irreversible problem, okay, like what we call central pontine myelinolysis, leading to locked-in syndrome. Now there you have some uh, pathogenesis of the clinical manifestations. Okay, you have the neurological manifestations, okay, that are that result from brain edema. We have a very diluted extracellular compartment, so the water tends to enter into the neurons. Neuron swell, that is what we call brain edema. Okay, that increases the intracranial pressure and may lead to herniation of the brain through the foramen magnum. Okay, or herniation or displacement of different brain structures. With compression of the brain stem, etc. If it happens slowly, okay, the patients tend to not have too many symptoms will occur very slowly, subtle manifestations. Okay, the herniation tends to occur more commonly in the acute hyponatremia. Mind that someone by mistake is given uh, hypotonic fluids instead of normal saline, something like that. Of course, we shouldn't correct this too quickly. So now we can move to the thyroid. Okay. We were talking about the normal structures that you have to consider okay, that are very close to the thyroid gland. Notice the carotid arteries, some important arteries there, superior thyroid, inferior thyroid. Also the recurrent laryngeal nerves pass very close to the thyroid. So all these uh, structures may be injured during a thyroid surgery or may be damaged when people have thyroid cancer or maybe compressed when there are, uh, there is hypertrophy, there is growth of the thyroid gland. Also important to have clear what are the terms, the meaning of the terms, okay, hyperthyroidism, also known as thyrotoxicosis, is the syndrome that occurs when there is excess thyroid hormones, sometimes uh, elevation of the free T4 or free T3, okay, maybe or both. Sometimes if you do the regular thyroid function tests, we don't detect that. Okay? If we order TSH and, and, T, and T43, we are assessing the total level of the hormone, we don't know. Because the, it's the free hormone, the one that actually acts. Okay? And patients may even have a normal free T4 and have exclusively elevated the free T3. Okay? That is a test that is expensive and it's not normally ordered on, unless you really need it. Okay, there is a specific type of hyperthyroidism that is called T3 thyrotoxicosis. It's not very common, but may happen. 
Hypothyroidism is also known as myxedema. Myxedema is a term that we tend to avoid because it's confusing sometimes. But just in case you see it somewhere, it's a syndrome that occurs when there is a deficiency of the hormones. And goiter, important to know that it simply means enlargement of the tire. Okay, is someone has goiter doesn't mean that they have either hyper or hypothyroidism. It can be either or. Okay, the thyroid glow, it grows because of stimulation, continuous stimulation with TSH. TSH not only stimulates the production of hormones, also the growth of the gland. Okay, important to remember that. Is TSH the one that makes the, the gland grow? Now, people may have a, a growth in the gland that may be diffused, the entire gland is enlarged, or may have nodules that we may palpate, sometimes a single nodule that may be an adenoma, or sometimes several nodules. Okay, and we're gonna be talking about how to interpret the thyroid function test. You already had a question, right, in the, in the mini quiz. So hyperthyroidism is simply a syndrome. When we say someone has hyperthyroidism, we still don't know what the patient has. Okay, it's a constellation of signs and symptoms that probably you have heard many times or read many times. Someone with hyperthyroidism has an increased metabolic rate. The basal metabolic rate increases. All the tissues, all the cells of the body are stimulated to work more. So they are very alert nervous, and they have anxiety, irritability, emotional disturbance. Okay, they are, have it very difficult to concentrate, may have muscle weakness, okay, fatigability, or they are consuming lots of ATP, so they, they may get weak, and they may fatigate uh, easily. Okay, thyroid hormone stimulates or increases the number of receptors for cate catecholamines, so they may have a tachycardia, increased heart rate, lots of appetite, weight loss, hyperdefecation, which is not the same as diarrhea. Okay, they have an increased motility in the GI tract, so they defecate more, but not necessarily has to be a, a, a soft pieces. And they have heat intolerance. They produce lots of heat. Even in a place like with low temperature, they may feel Okay, you need to put the AC lower temperature. Okay, there are some signs, hyperkinesia, rapid movement, rapid speech. Okay, notice that there can be proximal muscle weakness, especially in the quadriceps. Okay, that's not very well understood why specifically it happens. They may have tremors, okay, the skin tend to be, tends to be fine, moist. Okay, abundant hair, onycholysis. You're going to see that if you study this very well, you already are studying hypothyroidism because it's going to be the contrary, exactly the contrary. They may have these findings in the eyes, okay, but it's more specific of Graves' disease. Okay, the lid lag, staring, that looks like they are staring, the chemosis, inflammation in the cornea and conjunctiva, periorbital edema, proptosis. Auscultation, they may have an accentuated first heart sound, tachycardia, sometimes atrial fibrillation that is resistant to treatment. 
while Paul says this near, and in the blood tests, okay, the hyperthyroidism, the primary hyperthyroidism, tends to have a suppressed TSH. Remember that TSH is going to be elevated when there is a pituitary adenoma producing TSH. In that case, we call it secondary, okay, hyperthyroidism. And they are going to have elevated levels of the hormones and a decreased cholesterol level. Why? Because thyroid hormone stimulates the uh, expression of HDL, of LDL receptors in the liver. And so they are going to have more cholesterol receptors in the liver. So the cholesterol levels are going to be low. Okay, that's something that we are going to see again in hypothyroidism. Okay, as you may imagine, they are going to have elevated cholesterol as a result of having less receptors for cholesterol. And look at this differential diagnosis. It's huge. That's why I told you having hyperthyroidism is simply a syndrome. Okay, we have to rule out all these conditions. Notice that you have on top the conditions that produce thyroid hormone overproduction. The most common in the United States is Graves' disease, which is a type 2 hypersensitivity reaction against the thyroid gland, but we don't have destruction. Okay, we develop autoantibodies that stimulate the thyroid gland, don't destroy them. They are called TSH receptor stimulating antibodies. And then we have other conditions, for example, toxic multinodular goiter, in which people, as the name says, have many nodules in the thyroid. And that is a very important start for the differential. Graves' disease produces a diffuse enlargement of the gland. People with toxic multinodular goiter are going to have on palpation many nodules, irregular. And there are no autoantibodies there. Simply the cells start working autonomously. They decide they are going to start producing thyroid, okay, independently of the amount of TSH. Okay, the third condition, follicular adenoma, is a single adenoma. Or some people may have a pituitary adenoma. In this case, it's the secondary hyperthyroidism, producing excess uh, TSH, or a hypothalamic disease with excess TRH production. Those are rare. Okay, those are not very common. Then we have other uh, conditions. For example, uh, germ cell tumors in the ovary testis, okay, producing human chorionic gonadotropin. Human chorionic gonadotropin is very similar to TSH. Okay, chemically speaking, they are very similar, so this hormone stimulates TSH, uh, sti stimulates the thyroid to produce thyroid hormone. And that is not very common, the same with struma uh, ovary, okay? and metastatic follicular thyroid carcinoma, cancer in the thyroid that makes metastasis in some place. Now, the middle part, thyroid gland destruction. Notice that these are causes of hypothyroidism or causes of a transient hyperthyroidism. For example, thyroiditis. There are different types lymphocytic thyroiditis, 
granulomatous or subacute thyroiditis. When there is inflammation of the thyroid gland, there is a release of the hormone that is stored, or that was stored previously. So there is a transient hyperthyroidism, and then these people go to different phases, normal function hypothyroidism to recover in the future. They're going to mention that later. And Hashimoto thyroiditis is the most common cause of hypothyroidism. However, at the beginning of the problem, the same thing will happen. People, when they develop Hashimoto thyroiditis, okay, they have a destruction of the gland, so there is a release of the hormone that was stored. In this case, we develop autoantibodies against the gland, but these are not stimulating. These are destroying. These are actually destroying the gland. So these conditions are going to have a trench in hyperthyroidism. And you have there some medications. For example, people who take exogenous uh, thyroid hormones simply because they want to lose weight. Okay. Uh, and neodarone that contains iodine. Okay. Uh, excess iodine, for example, may produce hyperthyroidism or hypothyroidism. That may happen. And interferon. Interferon alpha will produce uh, thyroiditis. So it's going to be transient too, like the viral thyroiditis or subacute thyroiditis or lymphocytic thyroiditis. This is simply when they are receiving the treatment with interferon. And maybe a transient thyroiditis. So for the purpose of our exams, etc., just focus Okay, on the first ones, okay, we are not going to be talking about uh, testicular tumor or, or, or ovarian tumors, etc. So here we have some of the conditions, the important ones for us. To understand the pathophysiology, we are going to develop, talking more detail about some of them that are really important. Graves disease, remember, is the most common here. We have stimulating PSH receptor antibodies. That's extremely important to remember that the gland is not destroyed. It's one of the few examples of autoantibodies that don't produce destruction or inflammation in the gland or in a tissue. Type 2 hypersensitivity reaction. Okay, we have an excessive synthesis of thyroid hormones. Then we have other conditions, the toxic adenoma or the multinodular goiter. Okay, the difference here is the gland is not diffusely enlarged. In one there is a single nodule, in the other many. Okay, these are autonomous, this is independent on TSH. And later we are going to develop more in detail acute thyroiditis, subacute thyroiditis. Okay, these may be following, for example, a viral infection. Now, specific to Graves' disease. People with Graves' disease have the ocular manifestations and the skin manifestations. Graves' ophthalmopathy. That doesn't occur in other types of hyperthyroidism. Okay, that occurs only in Graves' disease. Okay, these people have pro protosis, lead retraction, lead lag. 
and of course because of deposition of mucine glycosaminoglycans okay, behind the eyes in the soft tissue okay, there can be also infiltration with lymphocytes in the extraocular muscles okay, the same thing with uh, the thyroid dermopathy that is also known as pretibial myxedema but I repeat we try to avoid these terms are extremely confusing it's better to call it thyroid dermopathy or Graves dermopathy. Okay, in this case we have the position of the same uh, hyaluronic acid, uh, glycosaminoglycans, different uh, mucin, etc. in the subcutaneous tissue. The pretibial myxedema doesn't have too much lymphocytic infiltrate as it happens in the eyes. Okay, the rest of the manifestations in people with Graves' disease are because of increased sympathetic activity. Remember, there are more receptors for catecholamines and because of a stimulation of the renin angiotensin aldosterone system okay, that increases the blood pressure, etc., and also increased thermogenesis, a more uh, increased basal metabolic rate. Now, the enlargement of the gland may produce compression of the recurrent laryngeal nerve leading to hoarseness, dysphagia, if it, if it compresses the esophagus. Okay, you may feel a bruit in the thyroid gland because of the increased circulation, increased blood flow within the thyroid gland. Now, thyroiditis, we are going to develop it more later, can be due to many conditions, drugs, radiation, infections, mostly viral, Okay, the viral tends to produce a subacute thyroiditis. Bacterial infection is not very common, but will produce a more acute thyroiditis. Okay, these conditions, the thyroiditis, will diffusely enlarge the glands, and it's going to be painful. Okay, the painful is a very important detail to differentiate thyroiditis from, for example, Graves' disease that doesn't have a painful uh, thyroid gland or is not tender on palpation. And then we, have, then we have this hyperthyroid phase. Remember, I told you, goes through a transient hyperthyroidism, then okay, they may enter into a stage of normal function as the stored hormone is, uh, is being released, and then hypothyroidism. So the changes in the clinical manifestations and the blood biochemistry are going to be seen. Okay, in the first phase, for example, hyperthyroid, they will have high uh, thyroid hormone and low TSH, because thyroid hormone is suppressing TSH. And then we may have the contrary, high TSH and low thyroid hormones. Notice that there is another thing, radioiodine uptake. If you, we do a test okay, with uh, radioactive iodine, okay, measuring the uptake or not uptake of the uh, thyroid tissue. Notice that when there is inflammation, okay, when there is inflammation, the tissue is not gonna get iodine. Okay, the cells are dead, and they are simply releasing thyroid hormone. So you give the radioactive iod uh, radio radioactive iodine, and they are not gonna get it because they're not working. So it's going to be reduced. Okay, uh, the same thing, for example, in the hypothyroid phase. Okay, 
still the, the cells have not recovered. So the radio, uh, radioactive iodine uptake is going to be reduced. When someone has a multinodular goiter or a toxic adenoma and this tissue is actively producing hormone, there is going to be uptake of radioactive iodine more, than this, uh, more by these cells than the rest of the gland. Diffuse goiter or this Graves disease, there is going to be an increased uptake of iodine in the entire gland. These are things that you're going to learn better in clinical medicine, okay, but we, we have to start understanding a little bit the reason for that. Well, Graves disease. Um, the most important autoantibodies uh, are these thyroid stimulating immunoglobulin, PSI. You can see another name. This Another uh, name for these autoantibodies, thyroid stimulating uh, antibodies, so TSAB or TSI. Okay, these acronyms can be used, it's exactly the same. Not very clear how this starts. The ultimate etiology is not very clear. Viral infections, smoking, stress, interferon. That starts the process, and if the cells are destroyed as a result of any of these factors, okay, we are going to have dendritic cells that recognize this or take these autoantigens and take them to the lymph nodes. Okay, the B cells start making autoantibodies against these normal proteins of the body. Okay, so these autoantibodies bind to TSA, stimulating them and also stimulating the growth of the gland. Okay, they do exactly the same action that TSA does. Now, the elevated T4 and T3, they will make a negative feedback on the pituitary gland and hypothalamus. So TRH, TSH are going to be low, but there is no way these hormones make a negative feedback on the plasma cells. Okay, so plasma cells continue producing autoantibodies. We have to specifically talk about the subacute thyroiditis, also known as Decervain thyroiditis. Okay, this patient is going to have a painful thyroid gland. Okay, this is the most common cause of painful thyroid. And may be produced by different viral infections. Okay, you have examples of Saki, Echovirus, Mumps, Measles, Influenza, COVID. There are examples of patients that develop this subacute thyroiditis. But happens only in patients that have specific HLA. Okay, the B35. Looks like in these people, well, the, the follicular cells in the thyroid have some proteins that have structural similarities with some viral antigens. Okay, this is what we call molecular mimicry. Okay, molecules that are similar. Okay, so viral antigens or sometimes our cells that are damaged, okay, these particles are taken by this MHC2, the, the people with the HLA B35, and this activates cytotoxic T cells, and the cytotoxic T cells damage the follicular cells. Notice that here is not antibodies, these are cytotoxic cells. Okay, so when you put or you summarize your pathophysiology, Okay, of the different conditions. Remember, in Graves' disease, we have autoantibodies stimulating 
Here we have CDH cells, cytotoxic T cells destroying the gland. Okay, so the process is exactly the same as in any other thyroiditis. We have the release of the of the already stored hormone in the gland, transient hyperthyroidism. Okay, there is a lot of T4 and T3 released. That will lead to the clinical biochemical manifestations. Okay, that will inhibit the TSH. This may last for two to eight weeks, the hyperthyroidism. The gland is tender, enlarged. And then we are going to enter into the eutyroidism, hypothyroidism until the uh, thyroid function recovers. That may take two to eight more weeks. Okay, so look, look. Notice that the entire process, okay, if you maximize it, may take four months maximum. Okay, the eight weeks with the hyperthyroidism and eight weeks more to recover. Now this is uh, the pretibial myxedema or thyroid gra uh, or Graves dermopathy. Okay, there is accumulation of different connective tissues, proteins, and other substances. And this is the example of ophthalmopathy, Graves ophthalmopathy. And you have two cases, 59-year-old, with excess pro protosis, eye erythema, retraction, erythemosis, or conjunctival edema. And the, uh, below you have a 40-year-old, exactly the same, that is less uh, evident the uh, injection, okay? This can damage not only the extraocular muscles, also the optic nerve, so it may lead to blindness. On the next slide, if this works. This is a biopsy of the extraocular muscles. Notice the amount of lymphocytes there, mononuclear infiltrate. That doesn't happen too much under the skin tissue, but tends to happen in the eyes. And we were talking about the radioiodine uptake. Okay, when you have a patient that has no juice in the thyroid, okay, one of the tests that we can do okay, is this radioiodine uptake and depending on the amount of iodine that they take, or if they take or they don't take iodine, we call them hyperfunctional or hypofunctional, also known as hot or cold. Okay, hyperfunctional nodules are not, a good, are not good news. Nobody wants to have anything bad or anything abnormal, but they're rarely malignant. Only 2% may have malignant cells. Okay, when you see a cystic mass in the thyroid, typically a, a thyroid systems to have a colloid a material, but they are called colloidal. Sometimes they have a, a, a mixture of colloidal tissue or fluid and solid tissue, or sometimes they are solid. The solid ones are the, the ones who tend to have more malignancy. Okay, these hyperfunctional nodules rarely are malignant. They are, 
some risk factors, smoking, radiation, okay. Mutations to the DNA that activate the TSH receptor independently of TSH and they start producing a thyroid hormone. And that will uh, suppress the TSH. And of course, if we don't have TSH now, the rest of the gland, the tissue that doesn't belong to the nodule, is not going to receive a stimulus. So the rest of the gland becomes atrophic. Okay, so there is atrophy of the healthy tissue. They are going to have the findings of tyrotoxicosis, elevated thyroid hormone, low TSH. Okay, now uh, we are going to take the break until 11.05 to move to hypothyroidism. After it's been filmed. Oh. So go check that out to aid in your learning experience. Art injured, let's get into it. Oh, uh, okay, here we have a hypothyroidism. Notice that is the contrary to what we mentioned before. Okay, slow thinking, slow speaking. Okay, lethargy, the skin now is dry. The skin is thick. Okay, there, uh, they can, there can be hair loss, broken nails. Okay, the appetite is low, they have constipation. Okay, they will have cold intolerance. They, they may have menstrual disorders. Notice the signs, puffy face, round, slow speech, hoarseness. Okay, typically hypokinetic. Okay, they may have periorbital edema. The cholesterol is going to be elevated, it's not there but the cholesterol tends to be elevated, most importantly, the LDL. Now, there is a test that is uh, very good and very easy to do. Oh, well, that's what I was looking in the video here. Okay, you see there, delayed, uh, the relaxation phase of the deep tendon reflexes is delayed. There is a video here that shows that. Yeah, you can see delayed ankle reflex or Boltzmann sign. This is a patient with hypothyroidism. They are exploring the Achilles. Notice the relaxation phase, how it goes very slowly. Okay? That is very characteristic, and you can use it to follow up if the treatment is working. Okay, after the treatment, this typically improves. So you have patients and you don't want to wait for, for the results of the thyroid function test. That is something that you can do, okay? And it's very, a very good test. That's another position. I, I don't know if they have it after the treatment or other side. No. But if you find a video that compares before and after treatment, you're going to see the difference. Now, laboratory findings, uh, when there is a low production of thyroid hormone, the TSH is going to be elevated. In this case, we also may have distinction between primary hypothyroidism, which is this. Okay, but there can be a secondary hypothyroidism. 
in that case is when the pituitary doesn't produce TSH. Okay. So in that case, you're going to find low TSH and low level of thyroid hormones. Now notice that there are different types of thyroid hormones. The total T4 and T3. Okay, and the free T4 and T3, which are actually the active ones. The T3 is the one that is more active. Okay, and there is another that is called resin or reverse T3. We are going to see the importance of this later. RT3, resin T3, or, or reverse T3 is the same. Uh, this is a thyroiditis. Uh, the, the thyroid, hypothyroidism typically happens after thyroiditis. So the gland is not working, it's not producing new hormone. So there is going to be a decrease radio iodine uptake. Okay. The basal metabolic rate is going to be decreased. They are going to have, that explains the cold intolerance. Okay. They may develop anemia, typically macrocytic. But there you have another, uh, another factor for your differential diagnosis when the patient has a macrocytic anemia. Okay, you have their elevated serum cholesterol. Creatine kinase levels may increase. In people with hypothyroidism, there is also, more specifically in Hashimoto thyroiditis, there is also muscle damage. Okay, it's not very clear how this happens, but muscles uh, have a diffused damage. So we have elevation in the creatine kinase levels. Okay, they also secrete antidiuretic hormone. That's not uh, very clear. The mechanism, so they may develop hyponatremia. They develop type of SIADH related to Hashimoto thyroiditis. Okay, and also you have some changes in the EKG, low voltage in the EKG besides the bradycardia that they typically have. Now we have here the differential diagnosis. Okay, notice that we have some congenital disorders, aplasia, so no development or hypoplasia, very small thyroid gland, some biochemical defects in the synthesis of the thyroid hormones. Okay, those are not very frequent. And then we have the acquired ones. Okay, the most common here is Hashimoto thyroiditis. There is autoimmune destruction of the gland. Okay, but also, for example, in developing countries, okay, people may develop uh, thyroiditis or hypothyroidism not thyroiditis, hypothyroidism as a result of lack of iodine. Iodine deficiency, nutritional disorder in developing countries. There are other causes, okay, we mentioned before as a cause of transient hyperthyroidism. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, the iodine deficiency, that's a result of low protein, that's a result of... No, it's, uh, typically the, the iodine is... Uh, uh, foods that are rich in iodine are seafood, for example. Okay. okay. That's why we have the added iodine to the salt. Okay. okay. Just taking this uh, salt with iodine is okay. But people who don't eat too much seafood or things that contain iodine tend to have an iodine deficiency. Okay. Then you have the lymphocytic thyroiditis that we also mentioned before as a cause of transient hyperthyroidism. Of course, thyroid surgery or ablation with uh, iodine radiation or any other type of uh, treatment for uh, hyperthyroidism will produce hypothyroidism. Then we have some medications, iodine. Iodine 
as I said before, may produce either hyper or hypothyroidism. Okay, the one in amiodarone, thioamides, okay, also contain uh, iodine, you have there some other medications. Lithium that appears in every list of side effects. Okay, all of those will produce low, TSA, uh, low thyroid hormone and high TSH. Those are causes of primary hypothyroidism. Okay, and below you have hypopituitarism and hypothalamic diseases as causes of secondary or tertiary hypothyroidism. Okay, in those cases we are going to have low thyroid hormone and also low TSH. And of course, low TRH in the case of tertiary. But uh, the TRH, these hypothalamic hormones are hormones that we normally don't measure in patients. Okay, unless we actually need to. These are not conditions that are very frequent. And even if, for example, you suspect a condition with elevated TRH or elevated CRH, or it's very difficult to, to actually get these hormones in the blood because the hypothalamic hormones typically travel from the hypothalamus to the pituitary, and that's it. And you don't find them in the circulation. Okay, so unless you put a needle okay, inside the sinuses of the brain, you're not going to get these, uh, these uh, hormones. There is a test that is called subunit alpha, just in case you need it any, uh, any time. Okay, that is a byproduct of the metabolism of these uh, hypothalamic hormones. It's called like that subunit alpha. That when elevated indicates that there is an excess of a hypothalamic Maybe you need it at some point, I'm not sure. Now, Hashimoto uh, is an autoimmune disease. Okay, there is a defect in the T cells, the regulatory T cells. So the helper T cells get synthesized to different thyroid antigens. Most importantly, enzymes that participate in the metabolism of the thyroid hormone. Okay, so the plasma cells stimulated by the T cells start making antibodies against thyroid antigens. Okay, of course, after this, after the, after the antibodies bind there, you're going to have complement activation, cytokines, inflammation, destroying the gland. Okay, there you have examples of autoantibodies. One of them is the thyroglobulin antibody. And another is the thyro, uh, or thyroid peroxidase antibody, or TPO. This uh, autoantibody was known before as antimicrosomal antibodies. There is another antibody that is the TSH receptor blocking antibody. And don't confuse this with the TSH receptor stimulating antibody of Graves' disease. This blocks. Okay, so it doesn't let TSH to bind to the follicular cells. And they tend to have other autoimmune disorders. They may have vitiligo, they may have diabetes type 1, they may have different other autoimmune disorders. So here also we have molecular mimicry, okay, antigens that look like uh, those of viral infection. Yes. We don't give T3 to patients or unless they are in an emergency, okay, in coma. 
T3 is a very toxic uh, uh, hormone. We give T4 and the body knows what to do with the T4. So you can fix the No. The best treatment for hyperthyroidism is to remove or to ablate or remove the gland and give it because it doesn't have side effects as the medications for hyperthyroidism. Okay, so here we have again the explanation of the part of the cell that we mentioned before. Okay, remember this is a thyroiditis, so in early stages we may find the, the, the tenderness, okay, the, the, the enlargement of the gland, maybe rubbery, maybe nodular, and it's at the beginning before the gland is totally destroyed, with time, there is going to be atrophy of the gland. Okay, smaller, smaller, atrophic, fibrotic, that may even weigh 5 to 10 grams. Okay, and if you do a biopsy, you are going to see the infiltration with lymphocytes. Okay, the progressive fibrosis. And there is a specific cell for Hashimoto thyroiditis that is called the Hurtle cell. That are the surviving cells. Okay, that is just a finding on the biopsy. But it's not necessary to do a biopsy. We have the things very clear. Now, goiter. Okay, talking specifically about enlargement of the gland. Goiter can be diffuse or nodular. Remember diffuse? Okay, we mentioned the example of Graves' disease. Nodular, we can have adenomas or a multinodular goiter. These nodules may be classified into functional or non-functional. So depending on the amount of hormone that is produced by this abnormal thyroid tissue, goiter can be classified as uh, toxic when it produces excess hormones or non-toxic when it doesn't produce anything. The classic example of a non-toxic goiter is iodine deficiency. People with iodine deficiency have an enlarged gland but it doesn't produce hormones. So it's a non-toxic goiter. Best example of toxic goiter is Graves' disease. Okay, but Graves' disease is going to be classified as diffuse toxic goiter. Now, if there are nodules, we don't call it diffuse. We call it uninodular or multinodular toxic goiter. Okay, iodine deficiency. People will have decreases in thyroid hormone. Okay, subtle decreases. The levels may remain in reference range, but towards the low values. Okay, and the TSH okay, will increase a little bit, so they may be in the subclinical range. Now, this increased TSH will produce hyperplasia of the thyroid and that is what produces the goiter. Of course, the more, if this iodine deficiency stays for a very long time, this is going to produce an obvious, clinically evident hypothyroidism. Okay, these people who have iodine deficiency may not manifest the problem until they are in periods where we need to produce more thyroid hormones. For example, when we are growing or during pregnancy, so some people may develop the goiter during the puberty or during pregnancy. 
Okay. However, some people may have a physiology goiter during puberty or pregnancy. Okay, if this person doesn't have any nutritional problem and they develop a goiter during puberty or pregnancy, that's simply a physiologic goiter. There are some foods that produce a goiter, are called goitrogens. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't take those foods, common foods. But if someone has goiter, okay, we need to educate these patients, try to avoid these medications or these, or these foods. Is they are in the nose, you have some of them. So these are different causes of goiter. And when you study this, uh, remember that the tables that uh, we showed before were the differential diagnosis of hyper or hypothyroidism. This is simply, these are simply causes of enlarged thyroid. Okay, we have iodine deficiency or excess. Producing goiter. Or simply excess or of different uh, foods or iodine in the drinking water, medications. There you have the examples. Thiomites, thiocyanates. What is the thio there? And now some congenital disorders, okay? You have their defective iodine transport, synthesis of abnormal uh, thyroid hormone. These are biochemical defects. And pituitary or peripheral resistance to thyroid hormone, that is a very rare thing, defects in the receptors. They don't respond to the thyroid hormone, so TSH increases and stimulates the gland. But the list that you have there, the upper part is goiter with hypothyroidism or normal thyroid function. Okay, the diseases below are those associated with hyperthyroidism. Okay, Graves disease, toxic multinodular goiter. Okay, tumors, and ovaries, testes pituitary adenoma or thyroiditis. That, remember, is going to be transient. So it's more or less the same by the, from the point of view of goiter. And this is the classification, okay? But this is a morphologic and functional classification of goiter. Okay, diffuse or nodular that can be uni or multinodular. Again, you have there Graves disease, Hashimoto, Iodine deficiency, okay, TSH, uh, pituitary adenoma that enlarges the gland diffusely. So when you do a radio iodine uptake scan, you're going to have an increased diffuse uptake. Now, in the case of the nodular, you will see increased uptake only in one area or in, in several different areas, and the rest of the gland has a decreased uptake. Now, the functional classification, remember toxic, non-toxic, or maybe hypothyroid. Okay, the non-toxic is the iodine deficiency in early stages. Later may progress to low production. And you have there the toxic, increased levels of thyroid hormone. Okay, grave disease, the toxic multinodular goiter. You can add there the uninodular, okay, as well. An adenoma that is producing toxic adenoma, that is producing thyroid hormone. 
Ayan, hypothyroid, the Hashimoto thyroiditis, or congenital disorders. Now, thyroid nodules and thyroid cancer. These are um, important from the point of view of the pants, and of course important from your professional, uh, for your professional experience. You receive a patient with a nodule in the thyroid, what to do with that patient? Okay. Okay. There are different steps that you have to follow, but these are more for clinical medicines. Okay, I'm preparing, as I told you, a practice test or exam. I will try to include some questions that are more clinical medicine and pharmacology, so you can practice those and know what to do. What are the steps? What do I do first? Do I do an ultrasound? Do I do a biopsy? Okay, do I do a radio iodine uptake scan? Okay, what is the next step in the management of this patient? So a nodule okay, is a lesion that you can palpate or you can discover if you do an ultrasound. Okay, other tests, okay, different from the surrounding parenchyma. Remember solid uh, nodules are the ones who tend to Harbor malignancies, more likely. Okay, this is a common finding. Notice that uh, thyroid nodules are detected in 50% of the autopsies. Okay, so half of the population have some, and may, they may never know. Now, physical exam findings in five to seven percent of the adults. Okay, most of them are totally benign, colloid cysts. But around 6% may, may have some malignant cells. You have the risk factors. Radiation is the most important. Okay, those who receive radiation therapy for any reason, 2% of them annually develop uh, different nodules. And several other risk factors like smoking, alcohol abuse, obesity, metabolic syndrome, okay, increased level of insulin-like growth factor one, that means acromegaly. Okay, people with, uh, women with uterine fibroids. Okay, what could be the reason? Probably no one knows exactly why. Okay, iron deficiency, age, female, sex, and possibly, possibly, okay, oral contraceptives and statins. Of course, not very clear. And here we have the classification. You have the distinction between neoplastic and non-neoplastic. Okay, non-neoplastic nodules may be hyperplastic, simply grow of a part of the plant. Division, excessive division of the cells without any uh, importance from the point of view of cancer or inflammatory. Now the neoplastic ones are divided into benign and malignant. That is the topic of thyroid cancer. Okay? The benign ones may be colloid. These are benign, and it's the most common type. Or maybe a follicular adenoma. That is the one that we have to follow up more closely. Okay? Because this is the one that shares characteristics with cancer. So in some cases may degenerate into a thyroid cancer could be considered a pre-malignant lesion. 
Yung malignant ones are divided into medullary or non-medullary. Okay, remember the anatomy of the thyroid gland. Okay, you have these follicular cells that are forming a circle. They have colloid in the center. If we go back to the first slide, you can see it better. There's the eye. Okay, you see that those follicular cells okay, with the follicle, uh, with the colloid in the center, those are the uh, thyroid hormones that we have stored there. Now, in between these follicles, okay, in between these follicles, in this area, where the follicles meet, we have cells that are called parafollicular cells. Okay, we have there the C cells that produce calcitonin. Okay, so the follicular cells, where is it? The follicular cells, okay, are the epithelial cells that you have there. Okay, the cancer from the epithelial cells is called non-medullary thyroid cancer. So these are follicular cells that become cancer cells. This is or represents 95% of the thyroid cancers. Not very aggressive. Okay, people when they are diagnosed with this follicular cells carcinoma or non-medullary thyroid cancer, they typically leave decades if they are treated properly. Doesn't produce too many metastases. And then we have the medullary, okay, and this is from the parafollicular cells the C cells that produce calcitonin. So you know now what is gonna be elevated in these patients and what is the most likely diagnosis if calcitonin is elevated. Okay, this may appear by itself, isolated, but it's associated with multiple endocrine neoplasia syndrome. Okay, more specifically the type one. That also may have tumors in the pituitary, in the pancreas, Okay, it's a rare, it's only 5% of the thyroid cancers, but it has a bad prognosis because it's not responsive to treatments. Okay, so now what about the thyroid function tests when people have these tumors, when people have these nodules? Okay, having a nodule is not necessarily means that there is going to be an alteration in the thyroid function tests. Okay, we may palpate it or may be found due to other types of studies. Okay, most cases are asymptomatic and are irritated. They don't tend to have any kind of alteration in the thyroid function tests. Sometimes there can be signs or symptoms as a result of the mass, for example, compressing other structures, producing pain, producing different uh, symptoms there. That is that less than 1% produce thyroid disease. Okay, either hyper or hypothyroidism. Now, when we think that there could be a malignancy, what are red flags? When it's large, more than four centimeters, okay, there is around 20% of risk. When it's firm, when it's fixed to adjacent tissues, okay, when there are lymphadenopathies around, when there are there is horne, hoarseness or vocal core paralysis. Okay, notice that there is a triad that gives you a predictive value 
of 100%. Solitary nodule, cervical, cervical lymphadenopathy, more than one centimeter. And vocal fold paralysis. That's not too frequently we say 100% likelihood, okay? Now, what about the TSH if it's altered? Remember, in most cases, it's going to be normal. Okay, when someone has a normal or high TSH, that raises the concern for malignancy. Nodules, if you analyze or classify them according to the radioiodine uptake, are hot or cold. When there is an increase uptake of iodine, that means they are working. They are functional. And if they are working, they are likely to be healthy tissue. Not healthy, but at least not cancer. Now, when you have a nodule that doesn't take iodine, so it's a non-functional tissue, that is likely to be a malignant tissue. That's why the cold nodules okay, have a higher risk for malignancy than the hot nodules. Okay, so if the nodule is producing hormone, TSH is going to be low. It's present TSH, so favors a benign prognosis. When the TSH is normal, or low, or high, that raises the concern for malignancy, because that nodule is not working. Okay, and it's damaging probably the rest of the gland, so may be producing a hypothyroidism, and may be elevating the TSH. Now, we have to always consider the findings Okay, in the setting of things that typically are associated with them. Okay, don't stop when you have one finding. Okay, look for other things that may be together. Okay, one of them is these multiple endocrine neoplasias. Okay, there are three types. Okay, one, two A, and two B. Okay, and they are due to different mutations. For example, the main one okay, is due to a mutation in a gene that is called menin. And the other two, the main two A and B, are due to a mutation in a gene that is called RET, which is a proto-oncogene. Typically, main one syndrome produces tumors in the parathyroids, okay, in the pancreas, and in the pituitary, the three have the three start with the P. Okay. The two A produces the medullary thyroid carcinoma, producing calcitonin. Okay, and also may have a pheochromocytoma, producing catecholamines, and they may have parathyroid tumors. Okay. I'll try to imagine the clinical presentations of these people. Okay, try to create vignettes because they typically give you a clinical vignette with signs and symptoms of two of these tumors and they tell you which is the other one, which other manifestations, which other findings. Okay, for example, if I want to make a vignette about men one, I can tell you the patient has hypercalcemia or give you the signs and symptoms of hypercalcemia, depression, okay, abdominal pain, 
kidney stones, so the patient may complain of simply flank pain. That is the chief complaint of the patient. Uh, and headaches for double vision or bitemporal hemianopia. So I'm telling you parathyroid and pituitary tumor. Okay, what else do you expect to find? Well, typically these pancreatic islet tumors may be a gastrinoma or maybe insulinoma or glucagonoma. So excessive gastrin or excessive insulin or excessive glucagon. And the excessive gastrin will produce ulcers in the duodenum. It will produce a lot of GERD or epigastric pain. Yes, they give you certain details and you have to complete. What else? Or they can tell you which other uh, imaging technique will you use to diagnose. And then you can tell, you have to tell them an MRI of the pancreas or a pituitary MRI. Okay. With the low to A, they are going to have the cancer in the thyroid, so calcitonin is going to be elevated. And also they will have these uh, episodic uh, throbbing headache with high blood pressure okay, and all of the manifestations of the pheochromocytoma. The MEN2B, notice that is similar to the MEN2A, has a medullary thyroid carcinoma, calcitonin, pheochromocytoma, but these people have also oral lesions that are called ganglioneuromas. And they tend to have a marfanoid habitus. They don't have marfan syndrome. They look physically like marfanoid. Means they are tall, they are thin, long extremities, etc. So that is a lot of, a lot of things that you can use to make questions just using these three syndromes. Here you have a, another. It's not man, it's men. Puts that more organized. Now these can be examples of clinical presentations, flank pain, dark stools as a result of the gastric ulcers or duodenal ulcers, bleeding, okay. diarrhea. Remember the acid doesn't let the enzymes to be activated so they develop a diarrhea. Okay, the main two, both of them, okay, will have neck pain if they have a cancer in the thyroid, dysphagia, hoarseness, episodic headaches, palpitations, anxiety as a result of the pheochromocytoma. Okay, the difference is meant to be tend to have the mucosal lesions and the marfanoid habitus. Those are the details that you can use to play with the vignettes and you can test each other. Now, there is more that we need to know about the thyroid, okay? For example, there is a syndrome that is called U-thyroid, sick syndrome. Okay, this is a syndrome that tends to occur in people with chronic conditions or with a severe acute diseases. Also in people who are doing a diet for a long time, more common in hypocaloric diets. Okay. These are people who have alterations in the levels of the hormones, but have a normal thyroid gland function. 
Okay. And this simply happens because instead of converting the T4 into T3, when we activate the hormone, the body converts the T4 into reverse T3, okay, which is a, an inactive form of the hormone. Okay, if you like the biochemistry, you have the details on the right. Notice that the difference between T4 and T3 is that T4 has four iodine atoms, thyroxine, below. T3 has only three iodine atoms. But T3 and reverse T3 have the missing iodine in a different place. Okay, you have here. Uh, reverse T3, notice that it's missing one iodine here, while normal T3 is missing this iodine. So there are different enzymes that do the deiodination. If we are healthy, okay, this deiodinase will remove one iodine. If we are sick or we have any problem or we don't want to activate the hormone for some reason, we are going to remove the other iodine, making it a reverse T3. So it's inactive. Okay, and that's how you find if you do a, a test, okay, to diagnose someone with this thyroid sick syndrome. Okay, notice that you have the concentration of the hormones. Okay, there you have the normal range, mild, moderate, severe disease, and recovery. Okay, notice that the only thing that is elevated is the reverse T3. Okay, the T3. The T4 total, the three T4 are going to be low, more commonly in severe disease. Notice that the TSH is always in normal values, normal range. Okay, only during recovery it may increase a little bit, but the reverse T3 is always elevated. That is something that we not normally order, and they don't have any symptoms of. Thyroid disease, simply findings on blood tests. Now, emergencies in the case of thyroid disorders, the thyroid storm. This is a condition that will produce severe thyrotoxicosis, excessive thyroid hormone precipitated typically by some acute events, for example, surgery, trauma, infection, partition. If someone has a hyperfunctioning adenoma or a multinodular goiter that is hyperproducing hormones, okay, the treatment is surgery or ablation of the gland. Okay, but we are not gonna do the surgery until we reduce the formation of thyroid hormone. Okay, they treat first with medication to reduce the production of thyroid hormone with propyltyouracil or metimazole, and then they can remove the gland. Because if we remove the gland with all of this excess thyroid hormone inside, that may start being released during surgery, and we don't want that to happen. Okay, for example, in people with long-standing hyperthyroidism that don't use the medication and stop using the medication, Okay, they will have a, a acute presentation of pain, agitation, okay, delirium, coma, anxiety, vomiting, diarrhea, okay, tachycardia that may exceed, maybe a rate above 140, okay, hypotension or hypertension, 
excessive production of heat, hyperpyrexia. This is different from fever. That is as a result of infection. This is as a result of increased metabolic rate. Okay. And the thyroid function test may be not different from patients with normal uh, hyperthyroidism. Then we have thyroid cancer. We already mentioned something about thyroid cancer. Maybe primary, when it starts in the thyroid or metastatic. Cancer is from other places that metastasize there. Okay. And the incidence has been increasing as many other types of cancers. Maybe because we are living longer or we have more risk factors or we are screening more people. Who knows? There are different types, okay? Papillary uh, thyroid cancer is the most common. This is the one from these uh, follicular, from these uh, epithelial cells. Okay, you have there uh, some characteristics of this cancer. Okay, more common in women. Uh, there is another type that is called anaplastic that is more, more common in the elderly. Has a bad prognosis. And we already mentioned the risk factor for this age, female sex, radiation, okay, multiple endocrine neoplasia, and other syndromes. This is some characteristics of some of these. Okay, the papillary one is most of them. These epithelial cells, cancers. Okay, subdivided into papillary or follicular. Okay, so most of them are of the papillary type. Tends to be multifocal. Okay, more common in females who receive radiation. And we have the follicular, which is unifocal. Okay, has good prognosis, but it tends to spread to the lungs, so we have to detect it early. And the medullary that has a not a, not a very good prognosis, okay? May produce um, calcitonin and produce hypocalcemia. However, remember that if this occurs in people with multiple endocrine neoplasia and they have a tumor producing calcitonin that takes the calcium down and also have a, a hyperplasia of the parathyroids producing PTH and elevating the calcium, the calcium levels have no value here. Okay, this tumor may also secrete ACTH and may produce then Cushing syndrome. And we are going to find the calcitonin elevated. And the anaplastic simply has a very bad prognosis. Okay. Now, something that is important uh, is to know what happens in pregnancy with the thyroid function. Okay. Estrogens, when they increase, they stimulate the liver to produce a protein that is called tyroxine binding globulin. Remember, tyroxine okay, is an amino acidic hormone, but it is not water soluble, so it needs to be transported. Then, when we say we are assessing total T4 and T3, we are assessing the amount of hormone that is bound to TBG, or thyroid binding globulin. Okay, in any condition that increases the metabolic demands of the body, okay, the body is going to produce a more uh, 
thyroid hormone, but during pregnancy, there is also an increase in the thyroid binding globulin, so we may see elevation of the total T4 and T3 in pregnancy. I will pick at week 16 and will stay high until delivery. That doesn't mean that they have hyperthyroidism. Simply they have an elevated total T4 and T3. TSH should be normal or slightly low. And the free hormone is going to be normal. Okay, it's going to be totally normal in physiologic conditions. Another factor besides estrogen increasing the production of TBG is that human chorionic gonadotropin may stimulate the TSH receptors, increasing the production of thyroid hormone, okay, and decreasing a little bit the TSH. However, that is counterbalanced by the increase in TBG that will get the excess of the hormone that is being produced as a result of the human now, there are some dysfunctions. For example, the pregnant women, or this can apply to any person, but this is something that we used to study. Okay, the values I mean. The prevalence in pregnancy of overt hypothyroidism is only 0.56 maximum. Okay, some may have subclinical hypothyroidism. That is the most common one of the, preval uh, of the thyroid disorders. Okay, overt hyperthyroidism, 0.2, or subclinical hyperthyroidism. Okay, how do you know what is what the patients have? Notice that the hypothyroidism, when it's overt, we have low thyroid hormone, elevated TSH. Okay, the subclinical has normal free hormone. We're talking about the free hormone, not about the total. Okay, you have to assess the free hormone to see if they have a, an imbalance or not. Subclinical normal levels of the free hormone elevated TSH. There is overt hyperthyroidism when the free hormone is elevated and the TSH is low. And if the TSH is low and the free hormone, the free T4, is normal, we say subclinical hyperthyroidism. Okay, the overt ones are the ones that are going to produce symptoms. The rest are not going to produce anything. Okay, but physiologically what happens is what you have above. There may be an increase in the total free T4 and T3. There could be a, a, a slight decrease in TSH. Okay, but when you assess the free hormone, it has to be normal. Okay, to say that everything is fine, everything is physiologic. And that's all for thyroid, okay. 